This is Laree Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. to ProPublica from USA Today's investigations team. And for the past five years there, he's reported on some of the paper's most ambitious projects. His story on widespread labor abuses in California's port trucking industry was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. It spurred a raft of reforms. He was a part of a team that examined how G4S, the largest private security company in the world, cut corners in order to maximize profits. And his investigation into the company's role in a U.S. military airstrike in Afghanistan that killed dozens of children won the International Livingston Award. He's here today to talk with us about a very chilling story. Uh, an article, <laughs> this is one of my, y'all know how I love ProPublica, uh, an article called, They Called 911 for Help. Police and prosecutors used a new junk science to decide that they were lawyers. Brett Murphy, it's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you for being with us. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Let's start here. What is 911 call analysis? I had never heard of it before I read your article. Yeah, most most people hadn't. Um, I, I you know when I first started, I didn't I didn't know anything about it either. Uh, basically, it's this uh, police and prosecutors uh, technique or method uh, for determining whether or not somebody who calls 911 is actually uh, the murderer reporting a death. And what I mean by this is uh, it's a training program uh, that started about 10 years ago and it's become really widespread around the country. It's really pervasive. And folks who take the training course, it's a one-day, sometimes a two-day class, uh, leave believing that they can uh, kind of know when someone is lying or not because of uh, this list of things called guilty indicators. These are uh, turns of phrases, words, uh, ways of speaking that if you take the training, you can spot when someone makes a 911 call and then you can listen to the tape if you're in law enforcement. And then, uh, you know, all of a sudden you have this, this power to know. And what I mean by these guilty indicators, um, that's, the, that's what the founder of the program called them. There are things like um, being too polite with a 911 dispatcher, right? Like saying hello at the beginning of the call, uh, using the word just too many times. That's another example. If your answers are too short, um, if your answers are too long, if you're providing what they call extraneous information, basically it's this idea that there are uh, ways somebody who calls 911 should behave, should speak, and there are ways that they shouldn't. So if they speak huh. in ways that they shouldn't, uh, then, you know, it's likely that they're actually the murderer. That's that's the whole idea behind this thing. Now, as someone who loves languages, loves the study of languages and 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 accents, I, I'm imagining all sorts of ways that something like this could go wrong. Do we have any reason to believe 911 call analysis is a valid scientific form of inquiry? It was actually kind of the first place I started was, was with that question. Cause on its face, um, I was a little incredulous. I think kind of like you were, um, uh, just, you know, with the, with the premise of it. 
so I went looking at the research uh, that has come out since the program started, and there's been a battery of studies, something like five studies that have tried to corroborate the claims. That's sort of how the, the scientific community goes about these things. There's one study, and then there's additional studies that try to replicate the findings from that first one. And so far, nobody's been able to. Nobody's been able to replicate the findings upon which this thing uh, is predicated. And what that means is that it's not scientifically valid and that using it, actually using 911 call analysis in, in real cases is scientifically baseless. And that's wow. why we call it junk science because that's kind of the conclusion the experts have come to as well. And these are, you know, these are both academics from, from universities as well as law enforcement re researchers. People from the FBI have tried replicating huh. those findings, and they couldn't do it either, they, so much so that they actually warned against using it in real cases because it might exacerbate bias, they said. Now, I'm going to come back to the FBI in just a minute because, as your article describes, they played a particularly interesting role in the perpetuation of this science. But, but you've yep. identified the fact that it's we, we can comfortably call it junk science. It's not been able to be supported or, or replicated, the findings, by any independent uh, scientific searcher or researchers, including those within the, the law enforcement community. If it's junk science, do we really need to worry about this? How pervasive is its use if we know that it's not actually valid? Is this something that is just isolated to a handful of jurisdictions, or is this more pervasive? No, it's it's really pervasive, Larry. I, I, wow. You know, I was trying at the very beginning to quantify that, to see, you know, how how often the course was being taught, the training program was being given, how many cases it was being used in. Those are some of the questions uh, that, that drove the reporting. The founder of the program, and we can talk about him uh, if you'd like in a little bit, but the founder of the program says that he has personally consulted in more than 1,500 homicide investigations. My Those God. are just the ones that he's consulted mm -hmm. on. And then on top of that, his students are, you know, they number in the hundreds, probably thousands, across law enforcement. So these are detectives coroners who do investigations, dispatchers, and prosecutors who take the course, and then they have, they have used them in the real world. During the investigation, I found, uh, you know, this is just a sample, but I found more than 100 cases in which 911 call analysis played some type of role, either in the police investigation or all the way, all the way into trial. Prosecutors were offering it as, as actual evidence at trial. So even though there is no scientific support for the program, uh, it's gained a foothold in the justice system. No scientific support for it, yet it is solidly being relied upon by the criminal legal system. Don't we, we have rules against this, but I'm an attorney. I'm not a criminal defense attorney or a prosecutor in any way, but I remember in law school, we have the Dalbert standard. There's a scientific test that, or a test that the courts use to determine whether or not expert scientific testimony of this type is admissible in court. They have to be, uh, the, the information has to be provided by an expert. Uh, the expert has to testify about uh, the matter Matters that are requiring scientific, technical, or specialized knowledge, and the expert's testimony must be a, an assistance to the trier of fact. How does junk science pass the Daubert standard, which is the name of the test that we use to determine whether or not the science we're introducing into court is actually considered viable and not junk science? That's exactly right. Uh, and it was a question I had, too. So I, I was coming into this uh, pretty cold. I, I had some assumption uh, 
you know, we're working knowledge that there were rules in place, guardrails, like you said, uh, for, for deciding what should be admissible and what shouldn't be. And the more the reporting went on, the more I learned about how 911 call analysis was actually making its way into trial. There's a couple ways. The first is that prosecutors know, some prosecutors know, uh, that it does not have a reliable foundation, that it would not pass mm. the test you were just describing, the Dauber test. So the way that they get it in is that they disguise 911 call analysis as anything but, quote, science. The wow. way that they do that, and they've, they've shared their, their tips and tricks in, uh, in emails with one another, which we got during the reporting, uh, they put somebody on the stand, a, a detective, a dispatcher, who has taken the training course, and then they tee them up with questions uh, that are fed to them either by the instructor of the program or by another prosecutor uh, in ways to bring up the guilty indicators that I was talking about before. Hmm. They tell the jury beforehand, you know, what what's a normal way to talk on 911 call, what's an abnormal way. Then one of those people testifying uh, can mention what they found odd about the call. They can they they subtly bring up the guilty indicators that they identified based on their broad training and experience. And then in the closing arguments, the prosecutors will bring up again uh, what's normal and what's abnormal, abnormal about the 911 call. And the jurors, according to the architect of the program, juries, juries really love it because it's, it's, uh, they can easily grasp it. Uh, it can help them work out their gut feelings about a 911 caller. Uh, so that's one way, the prosecutors disguising it. And wow. and we have emails of, of them documenting uh, how and why exactly they do that. The other way I found it getting in uh, was through direct expert testimony. And this is what's not supposed to happen. This is what, uh, as you pointed out, is supposed to first go through uh, a Daubert hearing. And in one case I wrote about in Michigan, this was the case of a 16-year-old who was accused of murdering his brother, he said it was an accident. He was playing with a gun. Uh, prosecutors said he did it on purpose, and they wanted a detective trained in 911 call analysis to testify as an expert. The judge in that case uh, denied the defense motion for a Daubert hearing and just let hmm. the just let the detective testify as an expert. The reason the judge said was because the course had been certified by the state's training commission. When I called the the standards and training commission about this. They said, well, yeah, we fund it, but we don't actually do any, any vetting of oh the research God. behind it. We don't actually take a close look at the program. So it just immediately got legitimized by that state agency. The judge cited that and just let the testimony in. And the kid, wow. the 16-year-old, was convicted of murder. So all this is to say is that the guardrails that are in place are really up to the local jurisdictions. It's, it, it's very patchwork and parochial and uh, there's no actual list of experts who are allowed to, to testify or ways that things are allowed to get in. This is really scary, scary stuff. Let, let's talk about the proponent of this junk science. Uh, wait, is he himself a scientist? Do we, does he have any scientific background that may have at least at one point made it make sense that he would be proposed, he would be putting forward this type of inquiry, this type of uh, investigative, I'm putting that in air quotes, investigative, investigative tools. What do we know about the proponent of this form of science? And I'm putting that in air quotes as well. Yeah, so his name his name's Tracy Harpster. He is a retired deputy police chief from 
uh, a small suburb outside of Dayton, Ohio. Uh, in early 2004, uh, he, he first learned about something called statement analysis when he was uh, at a 10-week training program at the FBI. He goes back to Ohio after that, after that training program, and he enrolled in a master's, uh, a master's graduate program at the University of Cincinnati. He writes a thesis paper on 911 call analysis. During his career uh, as a police officer, he had very little experience with actual homicide investigations, but he was still kind of wrapped with this idea that there are ways, clues you can find in someone's statements. Hmm. Uh, for that thesis, he collected 100 calls, uh, 100 calls, mostly from 911 callers in Ohio, and, and two-thirds of them were white callers. Oh Still, he put together this list of guilty indicators based on kind of what he was hearing in those calls, and that became the foundation of the curriculum. Uh, it became those, those 100 calls, 50 were from, quote, innocent callers, 50 were from, quote, guilty callers. And from there, he, he, he derived all these conclusions that, that drove the training program to what it is today. So this small suburban deputy police chief with limited to no homicide investigatory expertise takes a sampling, which is two-thirds white, and performs his own non-scientifically sound analysis on it, writes a master's thesis, University of Cincinnati, I'm, I'm side-eyeing you right now, how this was approved, this thesis was approved. I, I'm curious as to the grade for this type of, of, of academic proffering, but that is the basis upon which more than 1,500 cases have been incorporating this form of junk science in a way that, the courts aren't even supposed to be allowing to be presented to the. Do, do I? Am I understanding this correctly? I'm asking it like this. I cannot believe this is the case. I cannot believe this is happening. Yeah, you pretty much got it. Um, so the, Jesus, uh, you know, with with research, I spent a lot of time with the research community trying to better understand how this all can happen. You know, what is supposed to happen versus what actually happened. Basically, with any kind of like seminal work to any, anything exploring a new topic. Uh, the research is often labeled as something called exploratory. Um, so, you know, the statistical methods you use uh, don't need, you know, you don't need a massive sample size. You can just say, hey, I'm taking a look at this thing. I'm going to invite more research uh, mm-hmm. after I publish this study. That's what exploratory analyses are, are kind of supposed to be. And that's what this first thing was labeled as. So a lot of the researchers were like, you know, that's, that's okay. But what you're not supposed to do is apply the conclusions from that exploratory research in the real world. But that's exactly what happened. Mm. It, was, it was a study of 100 calls that became for years uh, this sort of untested model uh, that was being taught and then used by law enforcement all over all over the country. And this is what gave everyone, all the experts I went to, the linguists, the psychologists, the lawyers, this is what gave them the grave concerns. They pointed out astutely that the sample size is incredibly small compared to the yeah. actual universe of 911 callers. We're talking about 100 people, right? And they made no mention in that 100 about all the different things that that make up a person kind of who they are where they're from their education levels their race geography dialects 
you know, whether or not they're autistic, uh, all of these things factor into the way people speak, not to mention whether or not someone's in shock or suffering from, you know, symptoms of acute trauma, all of these things would weigh into how people speak. And it didn't seem like any of those factors were were controlled for or mitigated in in that initial study. This is horrifying. And and you'd mentioned earlier that the FBI has since basically said this is not good. Don't use this. <laughs> we should not be using this form of, of uh, inquiry or we should not be using this type of training as we conduct our investigations. But didn't the FBI also play a role in helping to, to at least expose this type of junk science to the law enforcement community gener- in, in the first instance? Yeah, so the FBI was a real curious case for me uh, in the reporting. Like I said earlier, he, um, Herbster first learned about statement analysis by way of that FBI program. One of his uh, uh, co-authors in a subsequent study was an FBI agent. That subsequent study was based on those same 100 calls I was talking about earlier. Mm. And then... The FBI was the first outlet to publish it uh, wow. to, you know, uh, uh, the, the wide audience. It had not been published in a peer-reviewed journal, but the FBI in a bulletin sent their work directly to law enforcement departments all over the country. Hmm. Uh, that had a massive audience and an immediate impact. You had detectives and prosecutors calling up the founder of the program and asking for consultations on cases that led to more cases, and then that ultimately led to the training program. And for years, for years, the FBI didn't say anything else about it uh, until some researchers in the behavior analysis unit there conducted a, a pair of twin studies uh, that said exactly kind of what you were just alluding to, that we could not replicate these findings. Uh, you, should, you should not use it to bring actual cases. It might exacerbate bias, right? Mm. But still, I found in recent years, when uh, a cold case detective has gone to FBI officials in that same unit, inside of the behavioral analysis unit, saying, hey, I'm trying to crack this case, I have a 911 audio, they have directed those cold case detectives back to Harpster, the, the wow. founder of the program. So even though their own scientists are warning against it, in recent years, those, the same bureau, the same agency mm. directing law enforcement to continue using it which is something you wrote about too. Brett Murphy, this is chilling stuff, and I'm so glad that you are exposing it and giving it the light of day. And I'm hopeful that people will hear this conversation. We'll, we've tweeted out, tweeted out the article. I want people to read this article. It is horrifying, but it is absolutely necessary that we are aware that this is happening so that we can organize and, and be effective in our efforts to fight against it. Uh, Brett, how can people follow you and the work that you're doing at ProPublica and, and get a hold of, because this is not the only time you've addressed uh, challenging topics like this. How can they connect with you beyond this show? Yeah, so the the best way to follow our work is at propublica.org.org, and the best way to follow me and the stuff I publish is probably just through my Twitter handle. It's uh, Brett2TsMMurphy, and it's uh, two M's, uh, at Brett M. Murphy. 
Brett Murphy, we are grateful for this work. It's it's sad and depressing, but it is so necessary that we know what's happening because I cannot imagine being in a situation where I'm being accused of, of this. Uh, I'm being accused of a criminality based on this type of science, and I could be convicted and never even know that this is what helped to lead to that conviction. Really appreciate the work you've done here. Really good work. Thank you so much for putting this out into the universe. We appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Absolutely, absolutely.